Today I come with, uh, to the pulpit uh, with mixed feelings. Feelings that uh, while I welcome Elizabeth and John to our pulpit, John to the pulpit this morning to preach to us and bring the message, but sadness in that it's a farewell tour that he's on, they're on, as they uh, are leaving Kenya, the field that they've been on for quite a number of years now, and they're leaving that to come stateside to work with a church, a PCA church, Covenant uh, Presbyterian in uh, Phoenix area. And so uh, we're certainly encouraged by that, but sad to uh, say that we're uh, seeing them leave the work that uh, we've tried to support them at for probably, John says, uh, 20 years before my time, and uh, certainly uh, glad to have them visit with us. Um, the Lord has given them over the years challenging missionaries, mainly in Africa. I'm sure they've touched people all over, but in Africa, I think they've been in Zambia, Namibia, um, now recently in Kenya. John, mainly in a, seminar, a seminary teaching ministry, um, is uh, very uh, gifted at that, and uh, his good wife, Elizabeth, uh, working along with women uh, in mentoring and so forth. So. It's been a wonderful time, and I'd ask John now to come up. I'd like to pray for him as he uh, comes to preach uh, to us and be with us. John, welcome to Grace Covenant, and good to have you back. Father, we do lift up this servant to you. Lift up uh, John and Elizabeth as they have labored diligently for many years in an overseas assignment. Now you have a new career for them. You have a new vision for them. And we pray that as they go to this uh, new activity, uh, that they would indeed uh, continue to serve you well in the work that you uh, have called, to which you have called them. So we just lift them up now at this time and pray for them and ask you to bless them. In Jesus' name, amen. John, when you start, if you could take a few minutes and tell us a little bit about your change in assignment, maybe your family. Will do. Thank you. Will do. Good morning to you. It's great to be here. I'm glad for the privilege to bring God's word to you. Um, I'm also happy to bring something of an update. Uh, over the last 20 years, Elizabeth and I, with our children, have been on the African continent, uh, as has been mentioned. Most recently, I've been serving on the faculty of Nairobi Evangelical Graduate School of Theology. Uh, and we had been feeling a bit unsettled in our work over the last, I'd say, three, four years, and wondered what God had for us. We didn't think that it involved our coming back to the States, but a call has come from a church, and we believe uh, strongly that it is God's will for us. Um, it has been 20 years. Uh, back in 1996, we visited for the first time, and we had three little children, ages uh, eight, six, and four. And they grew up in Africa. Martin, our firstborn, is working in the oil business out in West Texas. He's a project manager uh, after having served a stint in the Marines and going to college. Our daughter is living in Indianapolis with her uh, fine husband, and they have blessed us with a grandchild uh, last August. So we are coming up on a first birthday for the little fella. Um, we're happy to show you pictures afterwards. <laughs> about, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 pictures. Uh, happy to do that. Um, our youngest, uh, Daniel, 
wishes to go back to Africa to serve as a medical doctor. He's recently completed a master's degree uh, in global health at Duke, and he's aiming to go off to med school next year uh, with a view to returning to the continent where he grew up. Um, thank you so much. We wish to give you a heartfelt, sincere thank you uh, as a church for all that you have done in making it possible for us to work overseas. Uh, we were trying to take stock uh, as we planned this return to the U.S. and we have calculated that Elizabeth and I have taught over 700 students at the bachelor's level, master's level, and also the PhD. And I've had opportunity to preach the gospel to well over 10,000 people. So uh, the Lord has, has, has done a work. The Lord has given us a great privilege in serving him there. The African church is growing by leaps and bounds. And I would ask for your continued prayer for the African church and her need for, for pastors. Um, statistics uh, given out are that uh, the African church below the Sahara uh, Desert is uh, growing by about 600,000 new members every month. So I would uh, ask for your prayers. It's not working? Yeah, we're good, all right. Well, let's turn our attention to God's holy word. Isaiah chapter 6 is our text, and we're going to be focusing our attention this morning on verses 1 through 8. I'm going to be reading to you from the New International Version. Isaiah chapter 6. Pay careful attention. This is God's holy word. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, open our eyes. 
Help us to understand with our minds and hearts what your word has to say. And may we, this day, catch a fresh vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, whom Isaiah saw so long ago. May you glorify yourself as we read your word together. Through Christ we pray. Amen. One of the blessings of mission work is that we don't have to be in the United States for political campaigns. <laughs> um, we were watching the whole political process from overseas. Um, I was in, in Cambridge, England at the time. And I was reflecting on a lot of this, the discussion that was taking place. Um, and what I saw was a great deal of concern about the election, particularly the presidential election. And it seemed that many people had the, the sense, the feeling, they were thinking, nothing else matters but this election. If the wrong person gets into office, we are ruined. And I got to thinking to myself that we perhaps have a problem in that we put our faith, too much faith, in political leaders and political parties. And I thought about myself. I'm overseas. I'm reflecting on what is happening. I thought about myself and political discussions that I had had and how, with some frequency, with discussions of political things, God was not so much in my thoughts. I had too few too few thoughts about God, how he rules and overrules in human affairs in the great political events of our time. Indeed, in the events of every age. What is the biblical faith? God sets up rulers and pulls them down. The heart of the king or any political leader is like a stream of water and God directs it wherever he chooses. In an argument from the lesser to the greater, Scripture teaches us that if a little sparrow cannot fall to the ground without the will of our Heavenly Father, then surely the great, the huge historic events of our time are also under his control. We should look to him in the midst of the turmoil, the momentous changes around us. And this is exactly what Isaiah did in his own time. He went to the temple earnestly seeking God in a time of violent political change. The year was about 740 B.C. And King Uzziah had just died after having reigned for 52 years. To put that in context, imagine if JFK had been president from 1961 until 2013. 52 years. Uzziah had been a great king, a successful king. The nation had expanded its boundaries and had prospered during his time. It seems that Uzziah was something of a military genius. And 
the country had grown in its territory. They had conquered the Philistines. They had invented new weapons. We're told in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 that Uzziah had become very powerful. But Uzziah's life story had a tragic aspect. You see, he had become proud in the midst of all of his prosperity. And he wanted to burn incense in the temple, an act that was strictly reserved for the priests. Uzziah went into the temple and he was followed by 80 of the priests who were protesting with him and telling him he must not go any further. He must turn around. He must leave. Uzziah was furious. He wanted to burn incense. He seems to have believed it was his divine right as king. God struck him then and there with leprosy. And he hurried out of the temple. He was shut out of society until the day he died. But there were other events. There were other, uh, other world events that were troubling Isaiah and his contemporaries. In fact, they were terrified because there was a nation rising up in the ancient Near East, the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Less than 20 years after Uzziah died, the northern kingdom, Israel, would be smashed to pieces, destroyed by the Assyrians. And 20 years after Israel had been destroyed and exiled, Assyria would capture every city in Judah except for Jerusalem. These were terrible days. Isaiah was a young, eloquent prophet who was connected to the royal court. In fact, we can say he was extremely well connected. And he must have been mourning the death of the old king as we turn to our text. I think he was wondering, what does the future hold? What's going to happen to us politically? What kind of leaders are we going to have? Will they honor God and do what is right? Or will they break God's law and bring disaster upon our country? As I said, Isaiah went to the temple earnestly seeking God. Looking at verse 1, we see that there are two thrones. There are two thrones here. One had been vacated through Uzziah's death. And this loss brought political turmoil, political uncertainty. But there was another throne. Another throne which was occupied and all glorious. Yes, King Uzziah was dead, but Isaiah was given a vision of the King, the Lord Almighty, in verse 5. And seeing God changed everything for Isaiah. The same is true today. When, by faith, you see who God really is, it doesn't merely change your plans. It doesn't merely change your perspective on life. Seeing God changes you 
personally so that you are never the same again. You are awestruck. You are in awe. You are overwhelmed to see, to realize who God is. And our first point this morning is this. Be in awe of God. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever your station, whatever your work, whatever your background. Before we study verses 1 through 4 together, let me remind you that throughout the Bible, whenever people meet God, or even one of heaven's angels, there's a powerful response. At Sinai, in the book of Exodus, the people of God said, do not have God speak to us, or we will die. If you turn over to the book of Judges, you will find that Samson's parents say this, we are doomed to die. We have seen God. After Ezekiel saw his vision of God in chapters 1 through 3, he sat down on the ground and didn't move and didn't speak for seven days. He was overwhelmed. The Apostle John, upon seeing the glorified Christ in Revelation chapter 1, fell at his feet as though dead. All of these people were awestruck. There are other examples I could give. And now look at Isaiah in verses 1 through 4. He speaks of the eternal God seated on a throne. There's royal majesty here that can never be lost in death. Isaiah says, the Lord is high and exalted, and the train, that is the fringe or the hem of his robe, filled the temple. The prophet is painting a picture with his words. Then, in verse 2, he speaks of those mysterious seraphs. Have you ever wondered what cherubim and seraphim are like? These seraphs, what were they like? Well, seraph means burning one in the original language. And they fly about. We read here that with two wings they covered their faces. I like what Calvin wrote, that even angels cannot endure God's brightness and they are dazzled by it in the same manner as when we attempt to gaze upon the radiance of the sun. Angels are overwhelmed by the majesty of God, he said. With two, they're covering their faces. With two wings, they cover their feet, perhaps the less dignified part of their spirit beings. And with two, they fly. But think, think back. With two, they cover their faces. It's not just that they turn away, that they avert their gaze. They cover their faces so that they cannot, will not, look directly upon God. And they fly to do His will. What's more, they live to praise Him. We read in our text that with voices more powerful than anything 
we have ever heard in this world. They shake the temple like an earthquake as they call to one another over and over again, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. In English usage, we have many different ways of giving emphasis to things, don't we? We can put things in bold typeface, or we can put them in italics, or we can underline them. In speech, we can change the tone of our voice, or we can raise the decibel level. We can shout. Among the ancient Hebrews, they emphasized things by repetition. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. It's as though they're using the superlative. This is the most holy one. The indescribably holy one. And if you, if, if I, this day, were able to take a glance into heaven, we would see the same thing. We would hear the same song being sung right this minute. The seraphs singing to God, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Why do I say this? How do I know this? Revelation 4.8. The Apostle John looks into heaven in his day and sees the same thing. We see the six-winged seraphs flying about, praising God for His holiness. What is this holiness? What is this holiness? It elicits absolute awe and even dread. And yet, this holiness is fascinating. It's attractive. Many people have the idea that holiness and holy things and holy words and holy people are boring. Have you ever thought that? (laughs) Holy things, holy people are boring. Is Isaiah bored here? I think of him as entirely captivated by this vision of God which he has received, unable to look away and terrified at the same time. Holiness is everything that separates, everything that distinguishes the God of the Bible from his creatures, from us. Theologians like to speak of the majestic holiness of God as well as his moral holiness. He is the Most High. Even the highest heaven cannot contain this God. He is so unlike us, so wholly other. He's incomparable. And our language, even if we were able to take all the languages of earth and put them together, they would be inadequate to describe this One whom our shorter catechism calls infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in His being. He is also so good, so pure, so absolutely holy that He can't even look upon sin. Habakkuk says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. 
was doing some research, I discovered that the Old Testament uses the words holiness, holy, to make holy over 800 times. This is a theme which dominates Scripture. And I think of every other attribute of God as proper, properly being called or described as holy. His is a holy love, a holy power, a holy justice, a holy wisdom. All that God is, is holy. All that God says is holy. All that God does is holy. How could it not be true then that the whole earth is full of His glory? This is God's greatness. It's simply overwhelming to consider. One hymn writer says that we should be lost in wonder, love, and praise as we contemplate the God of the Scriptures. Let me tell you a story. <clears throat> many, many years ago, there was a famous French king who ruled not for 52 years like Uzziah, but for 72 years. 72 years. He called himself Louis XIV, the Great. Some of you historians have probably read about him, know, know, know the story. I have doubts that any European king ever lived in such splendor and luxury, such extravagance. And Louis was determined that as he lived, so he would die in unparalleled splendor. He breathed his last on September 1st, 1715, after he had planned his own funeral down to the last detail. He specified that the great orator of his day, Bishop Massillon, was going to preach the funeral sermon. <clears throat> he dictated that he would lie in state in a casket of pure gold in the Cathedral of Notre Dame. And one specific instruction had to be carried out. He insisted that in the entire cathedral, a single candle would be burning right above his casket. Reflecting off the gold. Well, Bishop Massel carried out every instruction. And the funeral began with multiple thousands within that cathedral, hushed and peering at the single candle burning up close to the pulpit. Massillon rose to deliver his funeral oration. But first, he reached down and he snuffed out the candle. And his voice rang out, Only God is great. Only God is great. God deserves our deepest reverence and awe. Only God. In verse 5, Isaiah cannot contain himself. This is simply dread 
Woe is me. I am ruined. In meeting God, in seeing God, the prophet has an immediate sense of his unworthiness, his sin. Why? Because he's in the presence of this holy God. He doesn't just know that he's a sinner. He feels it. He feels it. And this is our second point this morning. Feel your guilt. There are some Christians who say that this is unhealthy. We should not focus on our guilt. We should not seek to feel guilty. It's unhealthy. If you're a believer, you should immediately put away any kind of negative thoughts like that. Mature Christians, they say, should always focus on how they are new, redeemed creatures. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Well, there's need for balance here. It is true, certainly true, that some Christians concentrate so much on their own sin that their sin begins to look enormous. And they can lose sight of God's mercy and grace in the Lord Jesus. They spend so much time looking down at the mess of their sin, their mistakes, that they fail to look up and see the one that God has provided as a Savior. One godly Presbyterian by the name of McShane said, for every look at self, take ten looks at Christ. I like that. And I understood um, why why he said that. Because as another um, godly man said centuries ago, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. See in Him everything that you need. This is wise. Look to Christ. But we are at the same time, to take a hard, honest look at ourselves, at our own hearts. As we see ourselves as sinners before God, we need to run quickly to to the Savior. It's not one or the other, it's both. Those who walk most closely with God are most conscious of their guilt and their need for cleansing on a daily basis. They're quick to confess their faults to God. Quick to confess their faults to others. As I read through church history, it seems that every movement of God, every revival, was characterized by confession of sin. Now Isaiah illustrates this in verse 5. He must have been one of the best, one of the godliest men in all, all, all of Judah. But he confesses his sin. And beyond that, he is quick as well to confess the sin of the entire nation. Not only does he call himself unclean, he says, I live in a nation among a people of unclean lips. In effect, he says, we're all ruined because of our sin. I believe that this gives us the key to unlock the main message of our text today. Isaiah is a sign. He's an exemplar for the whole people of God. His experience can be their experience. The process that he goes through 
is exactly the same experience that they can go through. Perhaps we should too. There are four steps here. First of all, Isaiah is confronted by this vision of Israel's true king, the Holy One, God. Secondly, Isaiah feels crushed by a sense of his sin and guilt in God's presence. Thirdly, in verses 6-7, through Isaiah receives God's mercy and his guilt is taken away. And then the fourth stage, in verses 8-13, through God enlists Isaiah to carry out his mission. It's, it's not only in this particular chapter that we see Isaiah saying that God's people are unclean. He says it over and over again. In chapter 64, we read these words, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteousness is like filthy rags. We should apply this to ourselves. Have you and I caught a vision for the blazing holiness of God? And has it, has it affected us down deep? Do we feel His presence? Do we feel our sin and guilt before Him? If we have, if we do have that sense, then we are ready for God's cleansing as portrayed in verses 6-7. through seven. The Lord responds to Isaiah's brokenness and guilty feelings by sending a seraph to purify him. The burning one flies with a burning coal. Interesting there. The burning one flies with a burning coal to touch the prophet's mouth, which is exactly what he said was unclean, was impure. And in verse 7, the seraph says, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Our third point today is receive God's forgiveness. Receive God's forgiveness. Fire in the Bible is a symbol of purging. You can see evidence for this if you turn over the page to Isaiah chapter 4. In the time of the branch of the Lord, chapter 4, verse 2, there is cleansing for God's people. Look at verse 4. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. You see it there. Who is this branch? In verse 2, he's the promised Messiah King who's coming from the stem of Jesse, according to chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord Jesus. So fire purges. Fire purges. But there is something in our text that you must not miss. It's not mere fire that purges. You cannot understand verses 6-7 through seven in Isaiah chapter 6 unless you take into account where the fire comes from. It is fire from the altar of sacrifice. The altar of sacrifice was that appointed place by God 
that makes all the difference. God had appointed the sacrifices to be made on that altar and those sacrifices on His altar, His holy altar, were what brought remission of sins, forgiveness. It was the provision for God's sinful people as they looked ahead to the coming of a Savior in future days. The glorious thing today is that we have an altar. We too have an altar. We have a sacrifice, a far better better sacrifice than the blood of bulls and goats which can't truly take away sin. We have a better sacrifice that cleanses us once for all from sin and guilt. The writer to the Hebrews says, Jesus suffered to make the people holy through His own blood. Chapter 13, verse 12. And because of that sacrifice, John writes in his first letter, the blood of Jesus cleanses us, purifies us from all sin. I don't know about you, but I'm glad for that adjective, all. All. All sin. Taken away. About about eight years ago, I heard someone say that receiving forgiveness is sometimes twice as hard as extending forgiveness to someone else. Have you discovered that? Sometimes it's easier to forgive someone else than when you have done something really rotten and wrong, really hurtful, to receive the forgiveness of someone else. I ask you this morning, do you count your sins, all of them, as fully paid in Jesus? Do you count yourself forgiven? Do you count all those sins atoned for, covered over? Or are there certain sins that you're especially ashamed of? You think to yourself, if other people here knew knew the story of what I did, I'd never be able to face them again. Perhaps without ever saying it, you wonder how God could ever forgive you for this sin or that sin. Dear friend, receive the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Count all of those sins as forgiven. His grace is greater than all of your sin. Well, finally in our text, we see that Isaiah is sent on a mission. It's the last part of that process that I mentioned earlier. It applies to Isaiah. It applies to God's Old Testament people, it applies to us. Having a vision, first of all, of the holiness of God, the glory of God, we feel our sin and unworthiness in His presence. We receive God's forgiveness through through the sacrifice that He has appointed. Number four, we are enlisted in God's mission to spread His Word. That's the final point. Enlist. Enlist God's mission. I can say just in passing that we have had the sense from the very beginning of our missionary work that this was what God wanted. 
I didn't have any dreams of adventure growing up. Goodness, before I flew off to Africa, I'd never even been outside the 48 contiguous states. It wasn't because of any desire for adventure, desire to travel, see the world. I had the sense that this was most definitely what God wanted. And by grace, Elizabeth and I were eager to do God's will, whatever it was. Enlist for God's mission. Enlist. We cannot miss the big idea in our text that the mark of one who is cleansed is a life of devoted service. The mark of one who is cleansed is a life of devoted service. You want to know who's cleansed? Look for those who are devoted to serving Jesus. Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Send me. As you think through this story, there's no possible way that Isaiah could have taken on the Lord's calling unless he knew that he was forgiven. Remember in verse 5? He says, Woe to me! I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord. In verse 5, is he ready to enlist for God's mission? Is he ready to be used by God? I don't think so. I don't think so. He wasn't ready to take up God's mission at that point. But the man who heard God's words of forgiveness in verse 8, through the angel, that one could take up God's mission. God's work. Isaiah appears to have a new confidence in God, a new confidence to serve God once there had been cleansing. I can let you in on a secret. Pastors oftentimes step into the pulpit feeling unworthy, feeling feeble. They think to themselves, how can I preach God's holy word when I am a man of unclean lips just like Isaiah long ago? But all that can change when the minister again puts his faith in God, in the Lord Jesus Christ. When he believes that in the Gospel, God has forgiven everything and made him holy in the Lord Jesus. The preacher suddenly has the boldness to say to God, here am I, send me. I will speak your word. God asked Isaiah to do something difficult. So difficult in verses 9 through 13 that Isaiah, it seems, <clears throat> didn't know how long he could endure carrying that mission. Um, we're not going to read verses 9 through 13. You can read it um, afterwards. But Isaiah fulfilled his calling for over 40 years. It was his vision of the King, the Lord Almighty, that inspired and sustained him over all those years of work. It was his vision of the King, the Lord Almighty, 
that sustained it. And seeing the most holy God, his attitude was, I'll enlist for your mission. Whatever it is, whatever you call me to do, whatever you want, I'll do anything for you. Any, go, go, go anywhere. <clears throat> when, I was, when I was a teenager, I went off to a, a Bible conference, and there was this old Welsh preacher. It fascinated me because back 200 years ago, my forebears came over from Wales, and this man had a Welsh accent, so I was interested. His name was Elwyn Davis, <clears throat> and he was a, a, a powerful preacher. He was also a, a, an old missionary who had worked in Europe for a number of years. And I'll never forget, he had his AAA card. He'd call people forward at the end of a service, and he would say this, will you make yourself available to God for anything, anywhere, anytime? He called it the AAA card. <laughs> will you make yourself available to God for anything, anywhere, anytime? And I went forward and signed that card. This is really the challenge that every single Christian needs, no matter what their age, their interests, their experience, their wealth, their health, their education, their family background. It isn't just for full-time Christian workers, missionaries, and the like. The question is this, will you put everything at God's disposal? Will you give yourself and everything that you have, everything that you are, to God? Do we really grasp what an extreme and radical thing it is to pray the Lord's Prayer and to say, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The God that we meet up with in Isaiah chapter 6 has the right to demand anything and everything from us. There's no holding back. There's no way that we can set parameters on what God can claim from us. Isaiah understands this. He understands it not just intellectually. He understands it with his whole being because, because he saw God and received forgiveness. <clears throat> Christians down through the centuries have understood this well. I think of that wealthy Cambridge graduate, C.T. Studd, who was a world-famous athlete. He sensed that God was calling him to the mission field. This is back in the 19th century. Do you know what he did? He gave away his fortune, and he gave up his, his sports career gladly. He gladly gave it up. He gladly gave it up, and he served for decades in China, and then in India, and then in Africa. This was the motto that he set down for his work. If Christ is God, and died for me, then no sacrifice 
can be too great for me to make for him. Let us pray. Loving Father, great, high, and holy God, we worship you this day, and we thank you for the riches of your word. We thank you for the call that your word makes to us to trust you, to draw near to you in full assurance of faith, to call the Lord Jesus our Savior. Deepen our faith. Grant us a a new faith and a new repentance and help us to follow after the Lord Jesus. Prompt us in obedience to your word to enlist for your mission, whatever that may be. To the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.